Thank you very much for inviting me and I'm very pleased to be here today. Um, as Julien said, I'm going to talk about um, issues of gender, gender-based violence and protection um, in the current refugee uh, crisis. The paper, what I'm going to talk about, is based on research that I carried out mainly um, in 2015 and at the beginning of 2016 in various uh, places in Europe on the route of uh, refugees coming, trying to arrive. Um, mainly they were trying to get to Germany, but some trying also to come to France, the UK uh, and Sweden. So I did research in uh, Turkey, uh, in Greece, in, uh, especially in the Greek island of Kos, uh, in Serbia and a bit in Macedonia. So to try and see the experience, talk to refugees and talking to NGOs and organisations um, working with refugees, to try and understand the experiences, the particular forms of insecurity or violence faced by refugees. And also to look at the differences between the experiences of men and women and the way in which women could be particularly vulnerable or face particular forms of violence. And also the response um, of uh, international organisations, the UNHCR, of um, NGOs and of the European Union um, towards these forms of insecurity and violence and towards the crisis in general. Um, so I wanted to start just by talking um, about, just to mention um, the issue of gender and refugee protection, which has been something which is um, difficult and has you know, been a cause of the fact there have been um, campaigns on the fact that women and victims of gender-based violence aren't sufficiently protected under the existing regimes for refugee protection. Um, there is no mention of gender or of sex in the 1951 Refugee Convention. So there's nothing in the motives of um, persecution which are mentioned in the 51 Convention which talks about gender or about sex. So the UNHCR from 1990 onwards has produced a series of guidelines on the protection of women, um, refugees and asylum seekers, on the protection of um, victims of gender-based persecution and on the ways in which national governments um, should try and incorporate this into their uh, national asylum systems. So in response, some countries have adopted national guidelines, including some countries in Europe, have adopted some kind of national guideline um, on gender-based violence, on the protection of uh, women refugees. But these are quite limited. And in in terms of the current crisis in Europe and the, the attempt to create a European, common European asylum system, within the common European asylum system, in the recast uh, asylum directives, there is a specific recognition that uh, gender-based persecution should be taken into account as a motive for granting refugee status within the recast qualification directive um, and within the protection, um, the, within the procedures and reception directives there's specific mention of the fact that there should be um, 
measures taken to protect vulnerable asylum seekers and refugees where, and vulnerability women as um, I'm going to talk a bit this, about this a bit more further on but the category of women and people who are victims of, of gender based persecution are often assimilated to this category of uh, vulnerable asylum seekers and refugees so there is some kind of framework within existing legislation and with existing policy for protecting um, people for protecting women and for protecting victims of gender-based violence. But I wanted to use the example of the current refugee crisis and to talk about what's happening at the moment to show, in fact, that there is very little protection and that sometimes the use of the label of vulnerability is not that helpful in, in fact, guaranteeing um, effective protection and what this does in fact could be to um, create stronger dichotomies and stronger binaries between men and women and gender based divisions and stereotypes which actually are not helpful in protecting refugees. So I presume everybody is familiar with the, the map and of seeing what's happening in the, um, in the crisis. These, this is um, slightly old now but just to show that um, there are still arrivals coming, you know, people coming through Greece and more and more people are coming through Italy, uh, coming to Italy now through Libya because of the current situation of the closing of the borders and the European-Turkish agreement. When I did my research, it's, um, I should make it clear that when I did my research it was still at, mainly at the point where the European borders were open or relatively open and before the Europe or just after the Europe-Turkey readmission agreement. So at the time I was doing my research there were still thousands and thousands of people who were arriving in Greece, passing through Turkey and arriving in Greece every day and were staying the time I was in Greece they were staying probably for about two or three weeks on uh, the islands and then moving on through Athens um, across the Macedonian Serbian borders and trying to arrive in Europe in that way. So the situation has changed um, since the, the borders have closed and since the Europe-Turkey readmission agreement and people are now more blocked, um, so a lot of people blocked in Greece or in Turkey. And then also there's been an increase in the other routes of people coming through through Libya. But I think some of the issues and most of the issues that I'm going to discuss um, are pertinent even with the changing of the, the migration routes and the political situation. So, um, why, when, just to give some basic figures, the figures we have, one of the problems of talking or doing research on gender in um, refugee uh, migration is the fact that there aren't enough accurate uh, sex desegregated statistics. So although UNHCR says women are about 50% of the refugees and displaced people um, worldwide, prior to the current crisis only about 30% of asylum seekers uh, in Europe or in the US were women. So women were still a minority of people who are coming to claim asylum. I think it's important to note that this isn't because women are less persecuted or in less need of refugee protection, but we can think about the gendered 
inequalities and barriers which make it harder for women to migrate in the first place and harder for them to reach Europe in the first place to make an asylum claim. So there's research which shows how the gendered inequalities in economic resources, um, problems of access to public spaces in some countries make it very hard for women to migrate. Also because there is um, a fear and an insecurity regarding uh, violence and specifically uh, gender-based violence on the journey which makes it more difficult or women feel more insecure or don't want to, to migrate. And then also, although we don't want to essentialise clearly about uh, women's roles, often it's women who do have responsibility for children, which again um, provides an obstacle to migration because they have to decide whether they stay with their children, whether they leave their children and come into exile on their own, or whether they bring their children with them. And many of the women who I met um, when I was in Greece, for example, had come with small children. And for them, that's one thing that they talked about a lot and were very traumatized by the fact that they had exposed their children to the dangers of the journey, which was an extra factor of um, insecurity for them to have to, to travel with young children. Um, so with the current refugee, well, the current refugee crisis, women are around 20 to 25 percent. Again, there is not really um, accurate data, but around 20 to 25 percent of the refugees who, are who were arriving and who are arriving by boat uh, are women. UNHCR generally often gives the figures of women and children together. I think conflating the categories of women and children is clearly not helpful, and it's something which has been pointed out by feminist scholars for a long time that um, we shouldn't uh, regard women in the same category as children, but it's still something which UNHCR does in their statistics. Um, there are around 20 to 25% of, of women who are arriving by boat, who were and who are arriving. Um, and that's an increase um, on the traditional... Uh, uh, the boat arrivals actually are, are nothing new. I mean, the people have been arriving by boat for many years in Europe. There's been a focus on these arrivals with the current crisis. But Previously, um, it was mainly men and mainly young men who were coming uh, this way. And there have been an increase in, in women. And when I um, increase in the number of women, when I was in Greece, I talked a lot to people who were working with the refugees and who noticed that they said um, since the beginning of 2015, they'd noticed a massive increase in the number of women who were traveling. Um, and also in the number of women who were traveling alone and who were traveling with young children so it was something which was very much noticed that women were there were more and more women who were coming women were not just traveling with their husbands but they were traveling alone more and more and they were bringing their children um, people attributed this to the fact um, in some cases women who had lost their husbands or who had lost their family in conflict in Syria I did meet some women whose husbands had been killed um, there was also something which was interesting that um, some people thought women were being sent in advance of their families because it was seen that if they were women were seen as more vulnerable, they'd be more likely to have get protection, to get help, and then once they had arrived in a European country and had refugee status, they could also bring their family to join them. Um, so there are various different reasons why there were more women and women who are travelling alone. But although there were more and more women who were travelling, there was little analysis of 
the particular experience of the journey for them and the particular insecurities that they face. And the, neither the UNHCR nor the um, NGOs who are working to support the refugees really had any policies put in place to try and guarantee protection um, for these women. I want to come back um, to talk about the, the label of crisis because I think it's important, I mean I've been using the word crisis and refugee crisis, but I think it's important for us to think about what crisis really is in, in these um, circumstances and the po political implications of using the word crisis to talk about what's been happening in Europe and the um, influx of refugees. As I said, boat migration to the EU is not something new. It's something that's been happening for, as you know, for many, many years. What is new? Well, gradually with the securitization of uh, European borders, the routes that migrants have had to take have become more difficult, more dangerous and clearly more expensive. Um, and so this securitization has pushed migrants to, to take more and more dangerous routes, which we can see from the number of people who are very sadly drowning and not even reaching Europe anymore. Um, so the, the boat migration is nothing new, but it's been described as a, as a crisis. And I think this labelling of crisis um, has important political implications. It's, um, it might seem banal, but I think it a, serves a, a very powerful political and symbolic purpose to show that this situation is a different from anything which we've routinely confronted before. So to say this migration, this, these influx of refugees is something completely different from the, anything that Europe has ever experienced. And also to say that it's something that's out of control of European governments. It's not our fault, it's nothing to do with us. And the crisis labelling has served to reinforce the securitization of migration, we've seen the increasing resources being put into Frontex and now the new uh, European Borders Agency, the increasing use, the securitization, the use of border security, and the justification of exceptional measures um, against this migration to try and control or keep out these refugees. So exceptional measures like the closing of borders or the EU-Turkey agreement, which as many people, many people would argue is actually contrary to international law on refugees. So, but these exceptional measures are being justified by the label of crisis um, and the securitization through increasingly through spectacular politics rather than through the everyday um, bureaucratic or technical, te technical management of, uh, of migration. There's been a long debate, um, as you probably know, between those who see migration as something that's become increasingly securitized and people who say, no, but there is still this everyday bureaucratic management of migration that's going on. Um, and I think that the use of crisis and the way that this crisis has been labeled um, has really reinforced the use of this spectacular and diminished the way the everyday bureaucratic migration control. Um, I would also say that there's been a failure, we could say a failure of, pol of the political, a failure of Europe and the European Union to find a political response, which has moved the response more towards a humanitarian response to the crisis. So rather than seeing this as a political issue and 
but for the EU to try and disguise the fact that they have singularly failed to find any political solution or to, to what's happening. Um, they've pushed the response far more towards a humanitarian treatment and a humanitarian response towards saving the lives of these people who are trying to arrive. And within this humanitarian response, I think we find something which often um, has been criticised in, in humanitarian responses, is the, the reinforcing of gender dichotomies, whereas women um, and children are treated as primarily victims, vulnerable, and men are seen more either as protectors in their role of protecting the family, or else as a threat, a threat to European security in various ways. So I would argue that the humanitarian treatment of crisis has in fact reinforced uh, gendered dichotomies in treating um, refugees. Also, I think we should see the way in which individuals have been overlooked um, in the regional management or non-management of the crisis. Feminist scholars have pointed to the way in which um, in traditional security studies, state security takes precedence over human security. And I think clearly um, the security discourse and the regional security discourse which has arisen around this refugee so-called crisis has taken away um, attention or focus from the experiences of individuals, including individual men and women. So. In my research, what I was trying to do was to bring back this focus on the experiences of, of these individuals, not just as a, a group of refugees, but as individuals, individuals who were gendered, um, who had particular gendered identities, and to show the ways in which their experiences could be different in their um, journeys to Europe. Um, so just to reinforce, I think the way that the current crisis really highlights the, the way that the um, European borders and European security occurs through a meshing gendered and racialized discourses. The way that the refugees are represented and um, within discourse is very gendered and racialized. The EU has put the put itself forward as having a normative role, particularly um, in the um, promotion of gender equality and the prevention of violence against women. The European Union and European countries have signed up in practice fully to the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, um, the Istanbul Convention on the Prevention of Violence Against Women, the, the Council of Europe Convention. So there is a normative level at which the EU has a discourse, a normative discourse of protecting women, preventing violence against women, pro promoting gender equality. But in the context of the refugee crisis, all this, this discourse and this framing of gender equality, of protection of victims of gender-based violence, comes into conflict with the discourse of securitization of European borders. Um, and I think what we've seen is that the, uh, these normative commitments to protection of victims of, violent, uh, of victims of gender-based violence, prevention of violence against women, have actually been ignored in the prevailing uh, wish to securitize borders. And these borders which are increasingly produced both as external through the securitization, the militarization of the, the sea borders or the border of Greece with Turkey for example and also as internal borders and I'm going to talk uh, later about the symbolic violence and the way which internal internalized borders are produced um, again through very gendered and racialized discourses around refugees. So in terms of gender, um, 
Gender equality, inequalities and structures are important at all stages of the um, <coughs> refugee's journey. And I think it's important to consider not just what happens on the journey, but to think about gendered inequalities and forms of insecurity um, in the countries of origin, transit and destination and have how these interact. Um, and that these insecurities, gendered insecurities and inequalities, are, I would argue, exacerbated by the EU policies. For example, um, research by Sharon Pickering which shows that women are disproportionately among the people who die crossing borders, so in sea crossings. And this is because of existing gendered inequalities um, and which can result in the fact that women are more vulnerable to, um, to violence at border crossings. They looked at the um, at deaths at sea and said the fact that women in many countries never learned to swim or the clothes they wore prevented them from swimming meant that they were more likely to drown if their boat um, was sunk. So the, the gendered insecurities don't just start on the journey, they come from inequalities which exist already in the countries of origin. But there are many sources of insecurity on the journey and the women I spoke to um, talked about various different things which had created a, a situation of insecurity for them. Um, European authorities have placed a lot of blame on smugglers for, for the crisis, although I think obviously we can see that smugglers are a product of this crisis rather than um, the cause, I would say. But smugglers, the, 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 um, the way that people had a relationship with the smugglers was, uh, was mixed. For some people smugglers weren't a problem, for others they were a big problem and, and a source of insecurity. It's become very, very expensive to, to come to Europe. The people that I met in Greece had paid uh, thousands of dollars to, to cross from Greece to Turkey. And then when I was in Calais I met people who were, you know, were paying again. $5,000 or 5,000 euros to come from, from Calais to, to England. So people are making money in the smuggling, but it's not just big networks of smugglers. Sometimes it's individuals who... Uh, so I think we have to um, put into question the discourse of these great big organized uh, smuggling networks and think about the, the variations. But it's clear that smugglers were um, a source of insecurity. I spoke to women who had suffered sexual violence and rape by smugglers. And there's also a phenomenon that women who would have less economic resources, who don't have the money to pay, um, often engage in transa transactional sex. So people were, women were engaging in prostitution or in transactional sexual relations with smugglers in order to pay for their passage to come, which again it stems from gendered inequalities in economic resources which lead women into a situation where they can't pay so um, they have to um, undertake transactional sex to be able to carry on with their journeys. Um, police and national authorities are also um, a major source of insecurity. Uh, I met women again in Turkey who had been put in prison, who had been um, victims of sexual violence. 
Um, and there are reports from Human Rights Watch of the sexual violence which has been committed against migrants in, in Macedonia, in Serbia, in Bulgaria, um, on the route by border authorities, by police. Again, I think um, it's important to say that all refugees were subject to, to violence and it was quite clear that there were the police and the, the border authorities were, in many countries, were using violence against um, refugees. But for women, this often took the form of specific forms of sexual harassment, sexual violence. Um, there are examples, for example, uh, um, in Macedonia where women were arrested and were asked to, uh, have to engage in sexual relations with the border guards to, to let them pass. Um, and again, all of this is exacerbated or has been, was exacerbated by the fact that it was difficult to pass, the borders were securitized, and so refugees were in a situation where they had very few other, no other choices. Um, one other thing which, um, uh, another thing which I think is important is the way in which the family itself and family groups could be um, sources of insecurity for women who were refugees and who were travelling. Because often it was assumed that women who travelled in family groups were fine and they weren't vulnerable because they had their husbands or they had their fathers or they had someone to protect them. Um, and the refugees who arrived, particularly refugees from Afghanistan um, and Syria, Iraq, were coming often in very large groups which were supposedly family groups, although when I you talk to, when I talked to NGOs, when I talked to UNHCR and they were saying, well, they were registering these people as families and they were like, um, they had no real idea of the family relationships that existed between these people. So in some cases, it was just groups of people who had come together to travel together to try and, in some cases, they were real families. In some cases, they were just people who had decided to travel together to ensure, to try and ensure their security on the journey. And for women particularly, because women who were traveling alone felt very vulnerable and very scared to be traveling alone. So sometimes they attached themselves to these larger groups um, and said they were family in order to try and be more safe on their journeys. But in fact, um, the fact that these were treated as families and that people weren't treated as individuals masked a lot of violence and relationships of power and violence within the so-called family groups. So, for example, when I was in Serbia, um, an NGO said, yes, we just talked to the chief of the family, the head of the family, and the head of the family is always a man. And they did say, yes, sometimes there are women behind who look not very happy and they might be crying, but we don't really talk to them and we can't talk to them. We just leave them with their family. So this uh, supposition, this idea that the family will somehow protect women, leads to um, ignoring, in fact, the relations of power and the relations of violence which can occur within family situations. And also it places a responsibility on men to protect women, which um, is also a gendered representation and a gendered supposition that men should just protect women when they're traveling. Um, and that clearly are um, issues of uh, domestic violence, of violence within families. Previous research has shown the way in which the traumatism um, and the change in, in, in conditions of migration, of exile, can in fact provoke domestic violence. But there's no response from authorities or from people working with refugees to try and understand this phenomenon or to do anything to, to protect women. Um, and for example, there are also cases, there have been cases in Germany within the refugee um, shelters, refugee accommodation, where there have been 
cases of domestic violence and women find it very hard to get away and to find support to leave their um, their husbands or their, their family members who are being violent towards them. Um, and then the inadequate reception conditions of refugees uh, created conditions of insecurity, everyday insecurity and violence as well. I just wanted to show a couple of photos. I don't know if it's very clear. Um, this was a photo that I took uh, in COS um, when there were, it was a point as I said where there were thousands of refugees who were arriving every day and there was nowhere really for them to sleep. The local authorities on the island didn't want, didn't have, they said they didn't have anywhere to put the refugees. Eventually they found this old hotel which was an old dilapidated unused hotel and they said the refugees could sleep there and they, they brought them there. It was a building which was originally designed for about a hundred people. Um, at the time I was there there were about seven or eight hundred people who were sleeping in the hotel. There was no running water and no electricity and there were two toilets for all these seven or eight hundred people. Um, and I don't, what was kind of struck me when I first went there was you walk in and on the floor there were just men. It was just men who were sleeping there on the floor and there was a very um, divide, there was a very divided public space. So the women, I thought at first there were no women, but they were all upstairs in the bedrooms and they'd actually barricaded themselves in the bedrooms and they put, they, you know, the bedroom, there was nothing there, they just had mattresses on the floor, but they tried to find bits of wood to keep the doors closed because they felt so scared in this space because it was a space that was shared by all of these hundreds and hundreds of refugees um, and the women were scared of living and sharing this space with men that they didn't know um, and they said to me that they were scared there was no light so that at night they were certainly wouldn't go out of their rooms but they were scared even to go out of their rooms to go to the toilets or to go out of the, the hotel to try and um, find food and at the time there were local groups, local support groups, solidarity groups who were bringing food um, and then MSF were trying to set up showers outside but there were very few um, uh, very, f there was no infrastructure for, for the refugees which was a source of insecurity for everyone but for women in particular who were scared of being in this public space where they had no safe space for themselves, they were scared of using the toilets and of the showers and there were women with young children who didn't have milk for their babies, they couldn't wash their babies, um, there were pregnant women so all of this, this um, completely inadequate or reception or conditions exacerbated the, the sense of insecurity and danger which women felt. And then again, this is uh, another picture just to show. This was in uh, Grand Sainte near Calais. Um, and again, you can see the conditions that people were living in. And it was the same situation that when, actually you can't see anyone on that photo, but when I went to the camp, when you walked around, you saw men who were outside. And the women, if you wanted to find them, they were hidden in their tents. And they didn't come out and hidden in the tents with their children because there was a lot of, um, they were scared. And there was a lot of violence around Calais and Grand Saint. There were issues, um, NGOs who were working there said that there were clearly issues of violence against women, but women would not go to the police because they were too scared because the police were seen as repressive um, and also there was um, there were there was prostitution networks and but again that people didn't want to talk about and it was hidden and the women were very much hidden inside their tents and scared to come out so I mean this is in France sorry is this water, is this water, can it's run by 
No, that was a, this was a camp that was just set up. There were some NGOs that were there. MSF were there trying to bring food and set up. Again, they set up some showers and things. The Grand Saint now they have built an official. Uh, official camp, which is a bit better, but there are many more camps like this around Calais. And although the official jungle of Calais has been destroyed, there there are lots and lots of small camps all around where people are just coming and, and camping like this. That was this was in the winter, so it was very very muddy too and um, and dirty. But the conditions are generally um, uh, not good for for all of these people. So. I think I just wanted to, to illustrate the way in which the inadequacy of reception um, and accommodation conditions really can have specific impacts on, clearly it's not nice for anyone to live there, but can have specifically negative impacts on women. Um, and. The, the women who I talked to expressed this. They expressed the fact that they, they felt very bad that they, they couldn't wash, they couldn't wash their children, and that they didn't have any facilities. Um, so I want to come back to, to the idea of vulnerability. Um, just to say, I, I said at the beginning, I think that the, the response to this crisis has really exacerbated or made worse the dichotomies which are used between women as vulnerable and men as a threat, and the discourses and in the way that people see refugees. When I spoke to NGOs, when I spoke to UNHCR, they were saying, oh yes, women are vulnerable, we're going to try and do something to protect them, even though they didn't actually do much to protect them. But there was a very much a perception that if they did if they were going to do something for women, it would be because they were vulnerable, and the term vulnerable is used a lot. Whereas men were seen more um, as a threat, especially young men. I spoke to someone from the uh, French Office for, for Immigration who was responsible for, in theory, resettling and um, uh, refugees from Calais and also from, from other parts of Europe. And they said, no, we want families, we don't want young men because we see young, they saw young men um, as a threat to them. And increasingly, men were seen as a threat because they were seen as a linked to terrorism um, in public discourse and also as a threat in terms of sexual violence. So it was recognized that refugee men could be um, the authors of sexual violence, um, but they didn't really want to protect. Um, but the the, uh, there was a big discourse, and there is a big discourse, of, uh, around the ways that refugees can be a sexual threat to European women. After what happened, the incidents in Cologne, there was a big debate um, about this idea of refugee men um, as, a, as a sexual threat. So they have seen a, th a threat on a number of levels. Whereas women um, were seen more generally as vulnerable. Uh, as I said, women, they can use, make use, strategic use of this vulnerability. So there were women who came on their own and they thought because we're seen as vulnerable, because we've got children, it will be easier for us to have a status and then we can bring our children. So there was a way in which women could actually play on this use, of this label of vulnerability and use it for themselves strategically to help to um, gain a refugee status. Um, but at the same time, some of them saw this idea of vulnerability. They didn't want to be labelled as vulnerable they, because they were women who had their own projects, they had their own strategies, they knew what they wanted from their migration, and they saw this label of vulnerability somehow as um, some kind of symbolic violence against them, that they didn't want to be vulnerable. Um, 
And especially uh, many of the women I spoke to who were wearing hijab, they said they felt stigmatized within Europe and they thought people thought they were dominated um, because they were Muslim, because they were wearing a hijab. So the fact of being a woman and being Muslim and visibly being a Muslim woman um, made them feel they might have been labelled as vulnerable because uh, within the discourse they were seen as women who were vulnerable because they were women and also because they were Muslim they were seen as dominated by uh, their husbands or their family. But they felt this was a, a form of violence against them. Just for example, one Syrian woman who I met actually in Paris, she was camping in, in the street in Paris in one of the, the camps that, that were just um, in the streets there and she'd been to the Red Cross to try and get help and she said people treated me as if she was a woman who was an architect um, qualified, she was a single woman but she said people treated me as if I was stupid because I was a woman and because I was wearing a hijab so within the humanitarian response there is it seems to be this symbolic violence of treating women as vulnerable which doesn't necessarily mean that they will gain better protection and in fact might mean that they become um, victims of this symbolic forms of violence. So I think what we've seen with these discourses is the reinforcement of racialized um, and sexualized constructions of refugees, of representations of refugees, which are not necessarily helpful um, in offering protection to, to all migrants and refugees. I'm just going to go on to that. So, um, just to conclude, really, um, and then perhaps. Uh, you have questions, so I could it would think it would be interesting to answer your questions. But I think this talk of crisis, we need to go to go beyond this label of crisis. And clearly, how do we protect people? The ideal would be to find a real political solution. But I think the crisis labelling, as I said, masks. The, uh, you know, that we push this into a humanitarian crisis rather than pushing for a political solution. And we need to be aware that the solution has to be a political solution. And we have to think really, um, as the European Union, what, um, you know, our commitment to uh, international conventions and to, to normative values on protection of refugees and the, re the recognition of the global responsibility of the European Union and to see that violence uh, is not just external but also internal. Conflict and violence um, has... Europe can't close its borders and ignore this conflict and violence because with these refugees it's, it's coming into Europe and that Europe has to take its global responsibilities. In terms of gender, I think we really need to deconstruct the, the racialized and gendered representations that we have of refugees and to really think of the experiences of individuals not just in categories of men and women or vulnerable and as a threat um, but actually to think of the experiences of individuals and what their needs are and to plan a political response which will respond to the needs of these individuals so um, I think I'll conclude there to leave some time for some questions. Um, thank you very much.